Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Lovely to receive all of your messages last week, particularly about that interview with uh, Ken McCallum and Neil Basso, ahead of MI5. Um, lots of you uh, got in touch with that, which is very nice of you. You can always get in touch. In fact, don't get in touch. Post a comment on uh, iTunes uh, or wherever you get your podcast from, but particularly on the uh, iTunes podcast thing because it helps with the weird mumbo-jumbo chart positions and all that. Anyway, review us. Comment, review, lovely. Right, coming up on today's episode, big old week in politics this week. Dominic Cummings, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's giving evidence to a select committee. What's a select committee, I hear you ask? Well, we explain exactly what the point of them are and how you survive one, uh, whether you're a witness or you're asking the questions. And Patrick Kidd, uh, Times former sketch writer, uh, gives us his take on the highs and lows of select committees. That's coming up uh, in a moment. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Monday, it's always Libby Waitchie. That's Libby Purvis and... And Rachel Sylvester. So let's start with your column, uh, Libby, on uh, the BBC. And it, it feels like a sort of slightly weary lament as someone who worked at the BBC for, for many years, uh, seeing what's happened uh, with the Martin Bashir case, with sort of the general... Um, you've basically rounded up a lot of uh, people who have, uh, you know, uh, veterans of the BBC and asked them what they think about the way the place is run. Yes, well, I, I looked for people who'd been executives or very close to executives for a quite short time, who hadn't ever sort of gone native and settled down and got the big pension, um, you know, to sort of see what did it feel like? What is that feeling at the executive level? And it was very, very interesting. I mean, one sort of said, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, he'd, he'd come from commercial uh, commercial uh, media and he said, you know, this is, this is quite extraordinary. You know, it, it's amazing. You want to say, hey, guys, this is fantastic. The money just keeps coming in. We don't have to have ads. You know, the license fee comes isn't this great he said but at the same time people feel incredibly hard done by you know all the newspapers are out to get them and so you get this atmosphere of being loyal brother officers sticking to one another you know on the executive level sticking to one another against this terrible enemy and he said the worst thing you heard constantly was it's only the mail it's only the daily mail and you know he used to say hang on hang on boys you know this is read by a lot of people this is public views you know public are paying us why can't we it can't be just them can it Uh, it's just Murdoch it's just the mail and I thought that was really interesting and another uh, completely different people I was talking to were drilling down into how it works within news and how the danger is that there's always some level above you can refer it up to and if you refer it up through enough layers the blame sort of gets sponged up like spongy flat layers of of some kind of soggy cake and the only (laughs) blame then falls down onto people like Matt Matt Wiesler the the you know quite a lot of people have had this but these blame down and fail upwards 
uh, feeling. And it's a cultural thing. It can be dealt with. I really, we've got a new director general now. There's been such a crisis that he's got almost a free hand. You know, he can say, look, I'm sorry, I'm going to abolish that job, that job, that job, that job. Responsibility is going to fall directly on programme editors. You will be sacked if you get it wrong. You know, there is there is no recourse. He could do all sorts of interesting things. Uh, whether he will, nobody can know. Is it, it, it because actually culturally, Libby, that when something goes wrong, the answer is to create more layers, uh, not... Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, Michael Grade says there should be a whole special new board to look at stuff. And you know what it would do? It would sort of stroke its chin a lot and then recommend that another board just beyond it should be, <laughs> should be started. I don't think that's the answer. What do you think, Rachel? What, the, the, the answer, because everyone can accept that, that not only did something go wrong 25 years ago, it seems to have gone wrong five, what, four, five years ago when Martin Bashir was, was rehired. But instead of just sort of prosecuting the specifics of, of the previous things, um, it, it does seem to be like a broader uh, uh, cultural problem at the BBC. Well, I think there's definitely something in what Libby says, and it's brilliantly satirised, isn't it, in W1A, that BBC um, comedy that they did themselves. You can imagine now a head of integrity and head of connectivity being appointed to manage this whole crisis. You can see the, the meetings that they'd have about it all. Um, and so I do think that, you know, obviously there was a huge... Uh, deception and appalling journalistic behaviour by Martin Bashir and then the cover-up and then all of that. But, uh, and there is a but for me here, I do worry that the government is just using this as part of their culture war oh, to yeah. bash the BBC. And I don't, you know, when Oliver Dowden writing in the Times today that it's a failure that strikes at the heart of our national broadcaster's values and culture... I th at the edges of it, I, th I agree with Libby, there is too much kind of bureaucracy, but I don't think it strikes at the values of the BBC. And I think there's a danger that you'll lose the sort of bigger um, virtue and importance of, of having a public sector public service broadcaster um, and there is an independent regulator which is Ofcom and so I think there's a danger that this is being used for political reasons by people who have never valued or liked the BBC and have it in for the BBC particularly Pretty Patel yesterday was even, <laughs> particularly even more excoriating oh, than Dowden. I suppose that's, <laughs> that, that could well be true but in the way the BBC is making their life much easier for, for, for opponents of the BBC the BBC is making their life much yeah. easier by doing this stuff and all you know Every media organisation uh, has had you know, problems in its past, including the one that we work for now, uh, which has been reported very enthusiastically by the BBC, as if they were the paragons of virtue uh, yeah. the whole time. And uh, yeah. I thought actually, I thought actually, Amal Raja, when he was reporting this on the uh, BBC, on which is all, you know the BBC reporting the BBC, but his sort of analysis on Friday night was was that you know at a time when the BBC is under pressure from a Conservative government, it's also under pressure from just public opinion because if you're paying for Netflix and Amazon and uh, now TV, uh, do you also want to be paying for, you know, why should you also pay for the BBC? There's a big question mark having that. And they've just, this is a massive uh, own goal, Libby. Yes, I think, yes, but I think, I think the politicians, as, as Rachel says, should, should basically butt out of it. I mean, Pretty Patel <laughs> seems unable to say anything without it being a threat. It seems to be her <laughs> one sort of mode of, uh, mode of discourse is, is, is threat. Uh, but actually, I wanted to be helpful. I mean, I really wanted to sort of say in this piece, look, there are these things. There is a chance, you know, things can change. There are these problems. But I think the, uh, Rachel's quite right that the, the danger of, 
the, the BBCs, you know, the, the, all the very many, and I say at the end, the very many good people with terrific BBC values, you know, being sort of hurled aside just because they haven't agreed with a particular government's line on, on certain things is very dangerous. I wish the politicians would just step back now and watch what Tim Davy does. And I hope Tim Davy is going to is going to do it, is going to take a firm grip. The last director general didn't. I mean, Tony Hall, I had huge hopes of Tony Hall. You know, I really, I really, I was completely, completely convinced that he would be a great thing. And then he, he just wasn't. He, he's very amiable. He's a very good person with very good values. And he seemed to turn out weak. Uh, and, you know, it, it makes you, it makes you sob. Uh, but what about what, what about the general idea that maybe if the BBC focused on the part of the reason why it gets criticised is whether it's, you know, uh, local websites which overtook uh, local newspapers, you know, doing more and more commercial stuff, posting recipes on its website, and all that sort of stuff. If the BBC was slimmed down to doing the job of a public service broadcaster, it would be less open to some of this criticism, wouldn't it, Rachel? Yeah, I think there's definitely a case for that. I don't see quite why they have endless you know, recipe websites or whatever. Uh, but but I think that that's not to do with the kind of heart and values of the BBC. That's almost to sort of get rid of the extraneous stuff. Uh, and then meanwhile, I think I worry when they cut the World Service and they cut funding for things that actually is protecting British values abroad. And you'd hope that that would be continued and expanded. Uh, so I think it just depends on what you're focusing on and you're right you do need to prioritize but that doesn't mean kind of cutting and hacking back the whole thing well, that's probably not as long as radio 4 goes on commissioning a series of mark steels in town <laughs> then, then i'm absolutely on the bbc's side uh, I have to just tell you, everybody, listen to Mark Steele's in town because it makes you love Britain so much. The people not... cheering at being mocked by Mark Steele. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I, must be, I wasn't aware that Radio 4 was still going since Times Radio launched, but apparently it is. Apparently it is, if only for Mark Steele. All you are is talk, man. Talk, you're all talk. All talk, all talk and no trousers or something. Uh, Rachel, uh, let's talk about the Times Education Commission, which you're chairing. Wait, I mean, it's quite a job you've got, even chairing. Uh, uh, this thing. Explain um, what the uh, the Times Education Commission is, first of all. Yeah, so the, the Times is going to be spending, I'm going to be chairing this thing over the next year, and we're going to be looking at the whole education system in the light of the pandemic, new technology, changing nature of work, uh, and the way in which the world has moved on, really, and just say, is what's fit for purpose and what isn't? Uh, and none of the politicians seem to really be looking at this seriously at all. Mm. So we're going to look at everything from social mobility and that sort of appalling gap between rich and poor pupils, where the disadvantaged are 18 months behind the more advantaged by the time they do their GCSEs. We're going to be looking at the curriculum. We're going to be looking at testing and whether GCSEs GCSEs are still the right way forward. We're going to be looking at um, whether children are ready for the workplace, um, for life, mental health and all those problems. We, and we got a poll in the paper today which says that only a third of parents think that the education system prepares their children for either work or life. And that is a problem. Um, so we're going to look at what we can do to make it better. I suppose that is a big sort of existential question of what is the point of education uh, to some extent? Is it edu learning for the sake of learning and the beauty of, you know, more about the world we live in? Or is it to churn out people who are uh, ready for the for the workplace? And I suppose that's, you know, that's, that's before you ever get on to what we should do. What, what's your sense, Rachel, as to where the education system should be? 
Well, also, what does it mean ready for the workplace and what does it mean um, education for the sake of it? Because I think sometimes what's happened is that the system that we've got at the moment, it doesn't encourage either of those things. So I, I've interviewed Lucy Kellaway, who's one of our commissioners, and she's a maths teacher now in a Hackney comprehensive. She was a FT columnist. Uh, and she says, actually, she feels that the exam system and the kind of rote learning and the rigmarole of the mark scheme mm. is disadvantaging all her pupils so that she's you know they're so stuck it's impossible she said she was in an economics class the other day and a pupil asked a really fascinating question about tax and if they'd spent the whole hour discussing that the children would have just learned a huge amount they would have been a huge uh, they'd have been much better prepared for work and also learned a lot for the sake of learning but she couldn't because she had to get through six more slides to prepare them for their exam so they could get the right answer in the exam technique you know process mm. uh, and there's that sense that it's not do, fulfilling either of those things so I think mm. we need more creativity uh, more less kind of mark scheme minutiae of the curriculum more freedom and flexibility uh, more uh, sort of teamwork and ability to work on um, projects together rather than just you know stuffing facts into children Libby, you've, you've spent a long time reporting yeah. on uh, uh, education. And we go sort of slightly through these waves and it feels like, you know, te 10 years ago, Michael Gove, you know, more and more knowledge uh, and uh, you know, almost learning by rote and children had to memorise all this stuff for their exams. And now that sort of feels like it's going out of fashion again. Yes, I'm, I'm loving the Education Commission. I hope it's going to have some really good arguments. I hope Rachel is, is going to stir up some people, you know, who say extreme <laughs> on one side, extreme on the other. It's got to argue with itself. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated by it. There are so many interesting things. The business of longer days or not is interesting. And so is the whole business of what's called parity of esteem for te technical education. And I'd like to sort of think of technical education always running alongside a much uh, wider, relaxed cultural offer. So so that you may be training to be an absolutely sort of top nuclear scientist or, or indeed a, a plumber or a, or, a, or a riveter or an engineer. And at the same time, it would be kind of assumed that there would be without exams, there would be music, there would be some poetry, there would be some drama, there would be there would be a wider cultural offer alongside. Some countries do this. Um, you know, just the, the sense that people are rounded creatures, you know, that you can't say, OK, we're turning out some very good technicians. OK, we're turning out some very good <laughs> physicists. You know, you, you want to say we're, we're turning out some people who are able to think sideways and and appreciate things more widely. I mean, I love the fact that the guy who did my two eye operations years ago was a very accomplished cellist and I thought yes you know, that, that's what we need you know, he, 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 handle and eyes uh, I, and I think that this is all part of education I don't know what Rachel feels I'd like to hear some I big totally arguments. agree yeah and we um I was speaking to Andrea Schleicher who's the sort of OECD big international guru on what works around the world and he said it's in other countries they don't have this sense of extracurricular activities you know, music, drama, art, sport are part of the curriculum. That's, and the sense that it's not the hived best, off. Yeah, exactly. The best education systems see the child as a whole child and they're trying to develop all their talents, not just for exams, but for the for the sake of their their sort of identity.
and their creativity. Because people, and are, I think people are whole people are whole people. People are whole mm. people. I mean, they used to be, you know, the, the Workers' Educational Association. You know, they used to be miners' philosophical societies in the northern pit towns. You know, people need both sides. And I think we, we get a great split now. You know, you're an intellectual. You talk intellectually things. You know, you're a, a practical child. We, we need we need to spread spread this out and mm. allow people to be whole people. Or you're a scientist, you're an artist, you're humanities, mm. you're, you're English, you're maths. Uh, I, it shouldn't have to be a choice, I agree. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester then, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a Times subscription, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what's a select committee? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. When the crowd say ball, select committee. When the crowd say ball, select committee. This goes out to all the DJs. Yeah, so Dominic Cummings, never mind the DJs, the DC we're talking about. Dominic Cummings up in front of this joint committee, the Science and Technology and Health Committee's inquiry into the government's handling of the coronavirus outbreak last year. Uh, he's giving evidence on Wednesday morning. I mean, he's been tweeting a lot about it, so we already know quite a lot of what he's going to say. But sometimes, I'm conscious, we talk a lot about select committees without necessarily knowing exactly what they're all about. What's the point of them? What can they actually achieve? So that's what we thought we'd try and explain this morning. Uh, we'll find out exactly what a select committee is, how they have the power to call up, whether it's former prime ministers, former officials, quite often a few celebrities uh, too. Uh, and so what we're going to do is sort of pick our way through them. Uh, joined this morning by Scott Colvin, a, a political advisor to businesses and the author of How to Survive a Select Committee. Morning, Scott. Morning, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. You're the sort of you're the, the one that primes the witnesses uh, for uh, a select committee. We've also got Siobhan McDonough, the Labour MP for Mitchum and Morden, who sits on the Treasury Select Committee. Uh, morning, Good Siobhan. Morning. Now, Siobhan, you're the sort of the attack dog uh, of the select committee, uh, you're <laughs> representing all attack dogs. Uh, you, listeners may remember uh, Siobhan uh, taking uh, Lex Greensill to task earlier this month. Mr Greensill, are you a fraudster? No, Miss McDonough, I am not. 
<laughs> An absolute belter. You also uh, put uh, David Cameron very much in his place. I'm slightly scared, uh, Siobhan, because you're sitting in the chair on the Zoom where you've given all these people a kick. I feel like I'm in the firing line uh, <laughs> at a select committee. Uh, and we're also joined by Patrick Kidd, the Times uh, editor of the Times Diary, who spent many years sketching some of the best and worst select committees. Morning, Patrick. Morning, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. So um, I'll tell you what, Scott, as uh, let's, let's Siobhan, first of all, what is a select committee? How do you get on one? You're on a select committee. Who's on it? Who's in charge? How are they supposed to work? Uh, well, it's about scrutinising the government over major um, areas of service. As you said, I'm on the Treasury Select Committee. So we look at the work of the Treasury, uh, how uh, finance works and how the regulators work. Um, there are the majority of places go to the governing backbenchers of the governing party, but other uh, the opposition is represented. And in our case, we also have an SNP uh, MP, um, Alison Thulis, um, in proportion to our numbers in the House of Commons. And I never thought that being on the Treasury Select Committee was going to be um, quite so exciting. Well, because there is that, because obviously every so often there are blockbuster hearings, whether it's with Lex Greensill or David yeah. Cameron or Dominic Cummings. But quite often you pick a sort of uh, it might be a government policy or a particular issue, um, you know, maybe a year on from a government policy to sort of uh, in, basically take evidence from lots of people affected by it and then produce a report on whether that policy has worked or maybe suggest some new ideas. Um, absolutely. We're looking at the moment at um, uh, the economy after coronavirus and the grants that were awarded to business um, and generally what the outlook for the economy is. So most of the time it's very interesting, but fairly dry stuff that people wouldn't necessarily <laughs> want to watch. OK, so that's a that's a perspective from uh, Siobhan as a member of a select committee. Now, Scott, you've uh, you know, you've literally written the book on this, but you spent a long time preparing people to go in front of people uh, like Siobhan. So how do you go about doing that? What sort of people have you have you prepped to appear in front of a select committee? Well, they're, they're one of the most terrifying experiences, <laughs> um, particularly if you're in the private sector. I mean, genuinely, if you've got a chief executive who's pretty well experienced and has done AGMs, the Today programme, you know, all range of kind of difficult moments. They always tell me select committee is the most terrifying of all because you just have no idea what type of questions you're going to get. You know, with David Cameron, when he appeared before the Treasury Committee, you know, there are literally just a thousand different questions he could have been asked. So trying to prep and prepare for every eventuality is the bit that makes it really stressful and high pressure. And so how do you do that? So because I suppose what you can't do uh, in, you know, if you're prepping someone for to appear on the radio, for instance, it might be a five minute interview, a bit of waffle and a bit of evasion. You can probably get through that, but you could be in front of a second for an hour, two hours sometimes. So what do you how do you prepare someone? Because some basically some, at some point they're going to face questions they don't really want to answer. Well, I mean, in the case of Philip Green, with the BHS scandal, he was before the committee for six hours like without a break. Uh, and on his own as well. So I can't, you know, not, I haven't got a great deal of sympathy for him, but, <laughs> but in terms of, you know, an experience like that, it's unprecedented. Six hours of, of facing, you know, relentless questioning. Um, I mean, what we, you know, tend to do is, is I, I would always, for example, always get the witness in the mindset of the, of the, the importance and relevance of the committee. You know, the committee is representative of the people. You know, it's a, a group of democratically elected MPs who, get to ask these questions and it's absolutely right they get to ask those questions so first of all we always have 
respect for the committee and its right to ask those questions, but also, you know, be prepared for every eventuality. You know, you've got to be uh, willing to answer questions on, on, on everything from how much you're paid to the performance of your company or if you're a minister, decisions that were made with civil servants. So, you know, it can be really difficult. But, you know, for me, the success in a select committee appearance is that people don't remember that you ever appeared. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's your top advice. Right, before we come to Patrick Kidd, let's pick through some some highlights of select committees. Uh, Scott, you just mentioned there uh, Philip Green, six hours he was up in front of the committee for. Um, he got he didn't really enjoy the, pro- the whole process at all, including this moment where uh, Tory MP Richard Fuller uh, was apparently looking at him too much and he really didn't like it. Let's take a listen. Did you, sir, do you mind not looking at me like that all the time? It's really disturbing. No, you just want to stare at me. It's just uncomfortable, that's all. I wasn't quite just staring at you, but I don't wish to make you uncomfortable. Sorry? I don't wish to make you no, uncomfortable. No, but I'm just saying, this is somebody else, but it's just uncomfortable sort of staring at me. <laughs> so that was uh, uh, Philip Green. Uh, he was giving evidence about the collapse of BHS back in June 2016. Didn't like uh, the MPs even looking at him. Uh, David Davis, when he was Brexit Secretary, he spent a lot of time in front of select committees, uh, including uh, this memorable moment when, having claimed for ages that there were impact assessments and so on uh, into every possible sector of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the impact of Brexit, um, he, he then later admitted that the government had made no assessment of the impact of Brexit on the UK economy in December 2017. Let's take a listen. So there isn't one, for example, on the automotive sector? On the automotive no, sector? No, not that I'm aware of, no. Is there one on aerospace? Not I'm aware of, no. no. One on financial services? Well, I think the answer is going to be no to all of them. No to all of them, <laughs> right. Now, doesn't it strike you, Secretary of State, as rather strange, given experience around the committee in which you have, the government undertakes impact assessments on all sorts of things all of the time, mm. that on the most fundamental change that we are facing as a country, mm. you've just told us that the government hasn't undertaken any impact assessments at all. Yeah, that was, that was quite a moment and definitely came out to haunt uh, David Davis, that his impact assessments, I remember he said they were in excruciating detail, but also did not exist. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, when he appeared in front of uh, the uh, Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, he was told off because uh, his supporters sitting behind him kept passing him notes. This is in July 2016. Surely you need to go to the heart of the question and be say what it is, which is racist and anti-Semitic. And you don't need to look at these <coughs> post-it notes coming from behind. You can ask the question. Can I just say to Mr. Rotherham and Ms. Chakrabarty, it's not really in order to keep passing notes to the witness uh, constantly. He doesn't have to be briefed as to whether he's... Or whispering to the witness. You don't need a prompt. There's no need to do that. You don't no, need... you may not, Mr. Rotherham. If you... you don't need to be prompted to, work to say it as it is. But Kane Livingston... There we are. So that was Jeremy Corbyn facing questions on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in July 2016. What, one more clip for a moment. It goes back to what Scott was saying about um, basically the aim of uh, business leaders is to avoid saying anything. Uh, this was what happened when Matt Britton in February 2016, he's the bo- he was the boss of Google. He was asked a straightforward question by uh, Meg Hillier on the Public Accounts Committee uh, of how much he got paid. And he, he really didn't want to tell her. What do you, what do you get paid, Mr Britton? Uh, if that's relevant, I'll happily disclose that to the committee. Um, what I understand well, is... No, no, I'm asking you what you get paid. Well, I'll happily disclose that yeah. if that's a relevant matter for but the committee. In it is a re- I'm asking you, so it's a relevant matter. Could you tell me okay. what you get paid, please, Mr. Uh, I don't have the figure, but I'll happily provide... You it don't know what you get paid, Mr. Well, um, <laughs> Chair. <laughs> I mean, perhaps you could give us a ballpark. 
of what you get paid. Forget the share options then. What's your basic it's, salary? It's, uh, it's a salary. Uh, I, I don't have the figure, but I'll provide the figure privately if it's relevant to the committee to, to understand myself. <laughs> yeah, he never, he never came clear up. Right, so Patrick Kidd, uh, former sketchwriter of the Times, editor of the Times uh, Diary. Hi, Patrick. So um, uh, some of those highlights and lowlights, what makes a good uh, select committee appearance to sketch? You can't always tell when it's going to come, is the thing. As has rightly been said, you're, you're there for much longer than a debate. Uh, and sometimes you're nodding off quietly in the corner, and then suddenly someone's committed news. Um, and your, your antennae has to, to sort of brighten up. I mean, the thing you have to remember is, is that the, the Inquisitors sit there in a horseshoe, um, and normally 11 of them. Do you know why there's 11, by the way? Your nerdy fact of the day. This goes back to Disraeli, who said that the ideal size for a committee should be 11 because it works for a cricket team. Um, <laughs> and, and you're never quite sure who's going to be hitting you in what order on what subject. Um, and so Philip Green, I, I was in the room for that one, um, probably for most of the six hours. He was immensely jumpy. It wasn't just uh, you, you play the clip of the MP looking at him. Um, I remember he got very upset because uh, Jeremy Quinn fiddled with his glasses. <laughs> and that's upset. And then he had to go at um, Richard Graham, who, again, you, you're asking difficult questions. Well, that's what they meant to do. And I remember at one point, suddenly the bell went, um, and it was for the start of prayers um, in the Commons chamber. And Green sort of got up as, as if to go, as if he was like a schoolboy who thought that that was break time. Um, and was told, no, no, that's that's for us, not you. Um, so you just sit there and you wait, and, and sometimes there can be really dry, dull stuff. And then suddenly someone will... Uh, well, for instance, in the Foreign Affairs Select Committee once, Boris Johnson um, got into all sorts of trouble over Nazanin Zaghari Rackler. In that fact, we could, we, we could take a listen to that one, because that, that, I was going to say that sometimes there is some actual news that emerges, rather than sort of uh, powerful people being put in the stocks. This is when Boris Johnson really did commit news. When you look at what Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was, was doing, it's just, you know, she, she was simply teaching people uh, journalism, as I understand it, at the, the very limit. She was... And, um, I'm very, I hope that uh, a way forward can be found. I, I, I must say I find it deeply depressing. I think it's uh, totally con contrary to uh, the interests of, of the Iranian people for this to continue. Uh, and of course, famously, that was very much not the case. Uh, the, the government line on uh, uh, Nazanin was that she was not working uh, training journalists at all. And, and it, but those comments were seized on by the Iranian regime to threaten her with, with more years in, in prison. So sometimes news news does emerge uh, from it, uh, Patrick. Uh, Shavu sorry, go on, so Patrick. I just say quickly on that, he got in such trouble that his next appearance before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee... Um, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, sent along her PPS to actually sit at the back. And as you pointed out, <laughs> Boris wasn't aware of this, and Tom Tugendhat, the chairman, said, um, you know, asked, are you always putting your foot in your mouth? And he said no. And he said, well, why in that case has uh, the Prime Minister's PPS been sent along? And Boris turned around, oh, Seema, ah, yes. And, and that was the debate where he, he then likened uh, Vladimir Putin to Hitler. So, I mean, it clearly didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work either. Uh, another time when, when news came out of a select committee was when uh, Amber Rudd, uh, of course, was uh, up in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee, uh, denying that there were targets for uh, removing people from the UK. This is back in April 2018. Uh, remember, not long after this exchange, she ended up having to resign. Let's take a listen. We don't have targets for removals, but you did. I, I don't know what, 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 what are you referring we to. We just heard from the previous evidence that the Home Office and individual, there are regional targets for net removals. I, have, I didn't hear the testimony. I'm not sure what shape that might be in. But if you ask me are the numbers of people we expect to be removed, um, that's not how we operate. 
Uh, and of course, that turned out not to be quite the case, and she resigned sh- soon after. Siobhan McDonough, as a as an MP on a committee, is that the sort of the the, the sort of absolute uh, gold standard that you're aiming for? The, the idea of uh, a, of an exchange at a select committee which leads to someone's resignation. That's the jackpot. No, no, you're trying to elicit information. I mean, particularly at the moment when um, the House of Commons isn't really acting uh, and holding the government to account in the way it should, because there's so few people allowed in the chamber and you have to get uh, a position to, uh, uh, on a list to speak. I think probably select committees are the only opportunity to really question a minister or a business per, a business man or woman, or as in our case, a former prime minister, David Cameron, who did try the trick of talking slowly and completely waffling and not telling us how much he owned the green silk. And I suppose what can you do in terms of the powers that a select committee has? Um, uh, do you, can you, you know, because in America, people are subpoenaed and that sort of thing to uh, give evidence. In fact, famous, famously, Dominic Cummings refused to give evidence to, to a parliamentary committee in the past. What, can, yeah. what powers does a committee have uh, to force people to come and give evidence and then to offer up things like how much money David Cameron might be making from Greens Hill, you know, how much the boss of Google might earn? What powers does the committee actually have? Um, I think that eventually you can subpoena people along, but people will generally come to the committee if they know they're asked because they don't want to be dragged kicking and screaming because that's going to make it so much worse by the time they get in front of us. I mean, we weren't successful in finding out how much David Cameron got from green cells. So I, I, I don't know how much if somebody really isn't prepared to tell you uh, the I suppose the the fact is that you uh, everybody knows that's the case and that's an embarrassing place to be in. I suppose that's the thing is that there's, there's get, getting information, need, but then, you know, there's a bit of public uh, damage and embarrassment that goes goes along with it. Yeah. People don't, people don't yeah. play ball. I'll tell you what, right, up next, I want to ask about um, particularly uh, celebrities appearing at select committees and what the point of that is. We'll do that next here on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, we're taking a look at select committees, uh, how they work uh, and what is the point of them. Let's turn our attention now to uh, when quite often, you know, select committees like to, you know, it's a chance to meet some famous people, uh, call in a celebrity or two to a select committee. First of all, this was uh, Russell Brand on drugs, uh, discussing them uh, specifically at the Home Affairs Committee back in April 2012. I think we're running out of time. I have a final question about... Time is infinite. Uh, Unfortunately, <laughs> we cannot it run is. out of time. It is, but for this committee, I'm who's afraid... next? Theresa May. She may not show up. <laughs> Check. She knows what um, day it is. Mr. Brand, I have a final question for you. That was uh, Russell Brand uh, undermining the entire construct of a select committee there uh, with Keith Vaz. Uh, that was back in 2012. Uh, more recent, in fact, he's, uh, Jamie Oliver has been up in front of the Select Committee several times. This was Jamie Oliver and Hugh Fernie Whittingstall at the Health Committee in May 2018 discussing sugar in milkshakes. This is a, a bottle of strawberry Yazoo. <laughs> uh, this is a Mars milk drink. We've got uh, 33 grams of sugar. Um, and Buddy's hacked this one uh, against uh, EU legislation. That's got nine teaspoons in uh, uh, of total sugars. So, Siobhan, what's the value of calling in a celebrity apart from just getting meeting your, meeting your heroes or, um, uh, or getting a bit of attention for your committee? Yeah, I think both of those, but also highlighting an issue. Um, so the issue of healthy eating, it can be quite dull. Uh, and But I imagine if you've got a few celebrity chefs, they're going to you're going to get much more attention for the arguments that you're having. 
um, I have to say, I mean, that is not a big part uh, of collecting mysteries. As I said, most of it is quite is quite dull. So if you can get a celebrity in, uh, perhaps it gets a bit more exciting. It um, the it, time it, I remember is when Rupert Murdoch um, had um, the uh, pie in his face. At, uh, I think it was a. Uh, maybe it was a, the business select committee. Yeah, I think that's right. That was back in back in the days of the, the phone hacking hearing. I mean, it doesn't get yeah. more spectacular than that, the custard pie being thrown around. No. Um, uh, but I suppose it's, it's more difficult to do that on Zoom these days. It's difficult to throw a, a virtual <laughs> yeah. a virtual custard pie at the boss. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott, what do you do about advising people? Um, there'll be a little bit there of, uh, of Russell Brand sort of undermining the whole, uh, you know, uh, basis of it. Um, uh, I was also remembering, um, uh, what's his name? But Aaron Banks. Aaron Banks was up in front of a of a select committee and then just suddenly decided, this was back in June 2018, um, just just decided he'd had enough and got up and, uh, and walked out. Let's take a listen to that, first of all. Sorry, I, I really had to insist. I was told a certain time and we've, we've got a luncheon appointment we don't want to be late for. Um, I think Actually, you can join. You can join us. You can join us if you want. We'll be in the. Um, so, 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 the, the, the part. Does someone want to take a uh, Listen, Max, could you just give us five minutes no. of your time? No, no. You said when you left, twenty minutes, and now we've yeah. run way past twenty. And off he went to lunch. So, Scott, is that something you would advise someone to do if they've had enough of a select committee? Just announce I'm off to lunch. Well, no, not really. Just as one quick aside on the celebrity thing, I know that when Damien Collins was the culture media sport. Select committee chair. He used to call him Gary Neville just because he's a massive Man United fan. And <laughs> like, like hanging out with him. Um, but just on Aaron Banks, I mean, interestingly, there's a very small category of people because actually the, the committees don't have the power to to force you to appear. Unlike in say France, where you can get a fine, it's seven and a half thousand pound fine if you if you refuse to appear. Um, most of the reason that you you end up appearing is because of the reputational damage if you don't. But there's a very small category of people, and Dominic Cummings used to be in that category, um, and Aaron Banks definitely is in that category, along with Andy Wigmore, who we appeared with on that day. Which is if you are sort of positioning yourself as a bad boy of politics or of business then you can treat the committee with complete disregard because you don't really care about the impact it has on your business. You don't really care about how people write about you in the media as a result. And that was a classic one where, I mean, Aaron Banks basically accused the chair of, you know, colluding with the Russians and taking backhanders and, you know, being drunk in bars and all sorts of crazy stuff. So, you know, that is a very small proportion of the witnesses that can literally stick two fingers up at the committee. I just wanted to bring it, um, sorry, go on, Siobhan. I just wanted to ask Scott a question. My understanding is that training of people who are witnesses at select committees got going because of Margaret Hodge when she was chair of the Public Accounts Committee, and that indeed people were more frightened of being in front of her than absolutely anybody else. Yeah, but Margaret Hodge was utterly terrifying. I mean, I, actually think, woman. I mean, the big the big change actually came in 2010. They changed the rules about. The, the select committee chairs used to be selected by party whips. So you gave it to loyal people, maybe at the end of their careers. In 2010, it became an election of the whole house. So you, you had to be as a Labour chair, you had to be elected also by Conservative MPs. So it, it led to the rise of these really independent, fierce uh, people like Margaret Hodge and Keith Vaz and Damien Collins and, and uh, Andrew Tyree. Uh, Margaret Hodge absolutely was, without question, the most terrifying <laughs> chair probably in history. So, OK, then let, let's look ahead to uh, Dominic Cummings on Wednesday. First of all, Scott, if you were advising Dominic Cummings 
what would be your advice to him today uh, ahead of uh, Wednesday? How would you prepare him? Well, if I'd spoken to him a week ago, I would have said, don't post 51 tweets over the, of the weekend. <laughs> because, frankly, I mean, I'm interested in this topic, but I was bored to tears by tweet 51. Um, I think he's built it up too much. You know, unless he's got some staggering new piece of information he's going to reveal on the day or some re audio recording, uh, I just think he's bored everyone to tears. And, uh, you know, for him, I would, I, with everybody on the select committee, you just want a, three or five maximum messages that you're going to try and get across in the course of the session. But he's already given us 51, so what's left <laughs> to say? OK, Siobhan, uh, if you were on the committee uh, on Wednesday, what would you like to ask Dominic Cummings? Oh, what a great question. Um, what does he think of Boris Johnson as prime minister? Is he up to the job? I think we've got a slight flavour of what the answer to that might be, but she, uh, she very, <laughs> that's a very good question. And it's a classic, it's a classic question from an MP on a secretary. It's got nothing to do with the inquiry, but it's likely to elicit a good news story. Uh, and Patrick, if you were in the gallery, virtual or otherwise, watching uh, a, the uh, Select Committee on Wednesday, what would you, what would make it ideal for, uh, for sketch writers? Well, I mean, hopefully some, some props. I remember Jamie Oliver bought in a box full of drinks and handed them out to everyone. So if Jamie, um, if, if Cummings came in and actually played, put a, a, a jukebox down on the desk and started playing. <laughs> but the other thing is, he, he has said he will take questions for as long as they want, which is fascinating. So I hope they hold him to that. Um, but also he spent all this time in these 51 tweets saying how incompetent everyone is. So I'd like one question to be, Mr Cummings, why do you think things have suddenly got much better since you left Downing Street? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. His position does seem to be everything was absolutely awful. If only there was somebody in charge who, I mean, given that we were led to believe that he was basically running the show, there is something really interesting in that. I just wanted to round off with, the, with one of my favourite clips, a very recent clip, uh, this one, of it, sometimes it's the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the um, witness which goes slightly off-piste, but when um, the committee themselves start squabbling amongst themselves, this was Douglas Ross talking Tory MP on the Scottish Affairs Committee, uh, taking aim at his chairman, uh, Pete Wishart, uh, at the Scottish Affairs Committee earlier on this month. Let's take a listen. And I have to say at the outset uh, how disappointed people must have been to watch the, quite frankly, inept and poor chairing of this committee so far by Mr Wishart. And I think people will understand why members of his own party and across listen, Parliament... Listen, Douglas, 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 excuse me, excuse me, Douglas Ross, excuse me, Douglas Ross... There's no need at all to make attacks on the chair of this committee. I've been elected by the House to chair this committee. Could you please just get on with addressing your questions? No, I'm just trying to get on with doing my job without any sort of personal attacks like that. Please get on with your questions. When you're so poor at your job, I will personally attack you because you have talked over witnesses repeatedly. This is, this is just absolutely a pathetic. Will you please just get on with your questions without making any sort of erroneous attacks on the chair? And on and on and on it went. Siobhan, have you ever found it, been tempted to attack your chair in the same way? No, I think you have to try and charm your chair to make sure you get the questions that you want. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>